Our reading this morning is from the book of 2 Timothy, chapter 4, verses 9 through 22. 2 Timothy 4, 9 through 22. Hear the word of the Lord. Be diligent to come to me quickly, for Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world, and has departed for Thessalonica. Crescens for Galatia, Titus for Dalmatia, only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for ministry. And Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. Bring the cloak that I left with Carpus at Troas when you come, and the books, especially the parchments. Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. May the Lord repay him according to his works. You also must beware of him, for he has greatly resisted our words. At my first defense, no one stood with me, but all forsook me. May it not be charged against them. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me, so that the message might be preached fully through me, and that all the Gentiles might hear. Also I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion, and the Lord will deliver me from every evil work and preserve me for his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus stayed at Corinth, but Trophimus I have left in Miletus sick. Do your utmost to come before winter. Eubulus greets you, as well as Pudens, Linus, Claudia, and all the brethren. The Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Amen. The grass withers and the flower fades, but the word of our God stands forever. You may be seated. I want to begin this morning with a quote from John Bunyan on the topic of grace. He wrote this, Such is the effect of the grace of God in the heart of a pilgrim, while on one hand he sees the propensity of his evil nature to every sin which has been committed by others and is humbled. He also confesses that by no power of his own is he preserved, but ever gives the glory to the God of all grace, by whose power alone he is kept from falling. And so the Apostle Paul has confessed here at the end of his second letter to Timothy. You'll notice that we've not only reached the end of the letter, that we did so by taking a larger section of the Scripture today than has been normal uh, throughout the course of the letter. On average, we've looked at about two or three verses each week as we worked our way through 2 Timothy. But this morning, uh, we have 14 verses, so it's a little different. Now, this is because the main course of instruction in the letter is accomplished. It's finished. And what remains here at the end is material of a more personal nature uh, rather than pastoral instruction. So it really is a different type of literature that we have to deal with this morning. Now, some of the content seems somewhat trivial. Uh, Paul asks Timothy to be diligent to come to him quickly in Rome before winter arrives uh, to bring a few personal belongings to him. But this is still inspired scripture inspired by the Holy Spirit, and it contains not only some some interesting and helpful personal and historical insights, but also some examples and instruction for the Christian life. 
I've entitled the message, Grace Be With You, which of course is taken from the last line of the letter. This is Paul's valediction. And we, and we find some form of this in every one of his letters. At the end of all of Paul's letters, including Hebrews, if you take that to be one of Paul's, he closes his letters in this way, grace be with you, amen. So is this just a throwaway line then? Is this just how Paul signs his letters, similar to us writing sincerely and then putting our name there? I don't think that it is. I think that the apostle, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, meant this as a blessing to his readers every time he wrote it. I think he meant it because he experienced the grace of God so powerfully in his own life that he truly desired that same experience of God's grace for other believers. So I want us to look at these 14 verses at the close of this letter and see several ways in which the grace of God is at work in the lives of the people that Paul mentions here. There are a lot of names in this section. Uh, This is normal, that near the end of a letter, the the apostle uh, begins to make mention of those who um, might be with him, who send their greeting to whoever he's sending the letter to, and also that he would mention those who who might be there on the other end, uh, receiving the letter that he wishes to greet personally. So this is not uncommon in Paul's letter to see uh, a large group of names at the end of one of the letters. But here he also conveys some news concerning the whereabouts of some of these people, some of whom Timothy would know and and had worked with in the past as part of Paul's missionary team. And, And so Timothy would have an interest in what has become of these people. Where are they? What are they doing? In verse 9, he encourages Timothy to come to Rome to be with him and and to do so quickly. And then in verses 10 and through 12, he explains why he is so eager for Timothy's company. He names six people and gives us their locations. Beginning in verse 9, he says, Be diligent to come to me quickly, for or because Demas has forsaken me having loved this present world and has departed for Thessalonica. Now, Demas was one of Paul's closest companions and ministry associates. At the end of his letter to Colossians, Paul makes mention of Demas. He says, Luke, the beloved physician, and Demas greet you. At the end of his letter to Philemon, Demas is listed as a fellow laborer in the gospel. He writes, Epaphras, my fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus, greets you, as do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, Luke, my fellow laborers. So Demas was for some time a faithful companion to Paul and a co-laborer with him in the task of taking the gospel to the Gentiles. But now, at his last hour, as Paul is in prison in Rome, Anticipating his death, Demas has forsaken him. He has abandoned him in his hour of greatest need. As he faces his approaching death, he is left without this faithful companion. He has withdrawn his fellowship, his comfort, and his support from the apostle. And there are a couple of contrasts here. First, Demas 
has not finished the race or kept the faith as Paul did in verse 7. Instead, he has turned aside out of the way. Secondly, Paul has just made mention in verse 8 of all who have loved his appearing. That is, all who persevere to the end, loving Christ above all else, longing for his return in glory. Demas, in contrast to that, has loved this present world. Rather than loving Christ in the coming kingdom, he has shown that his affections are set on the here and now, on this world. Again, this is contrasted with the apostle himself in verse 18 when he says that the Lord will preserve me for his heavenly kingdom. Paul's mind is fixed on the world to come, the kingdom of the beloved son, which he is to be a co-inheritor of. And this is a pattern that we see throughout the scriptures for true believers. In Hebrews, we're told that Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob had confessed that they were strangers and pilgrims on the earth. And that rather than seeking a rest in this present world, they desire a better, that is, a heavenly country. The Apostle Paul now demonstrates this same heavenly longing in his own life and contrasts that with Demas, who has forsaken him for the love of this present world. Now, we don't know if that means that Demas has abandoned the faith altogether and become apostate. Perhaps he did. Or perhaps he had simply abandoned Paul in his imprisonment through the love of his own life and safety and the weakness of his own faith. Trusted theologians and commentators are of various opinions concerning that point. But whatever the case was with Demas, he had certainly left the apostle at the most inopportune time. And think about this for a moment. Demas had apparently accompanied Paul on at least parts of his missionary journeys. Demas had been there with him as a fellow laborer, proclaiming the gospel establishing churches among the nations. Paul and Demas had been in the trenches together. They had been through quite a bit. They had likely suffered hardship together, known the joy of seeing people come to faith and salvation, baptizing. They had known the sorrow of seeing people reject the good news of Christ. And they had worked together to disciple new believers and to mature them in the faith. They had invested their lives together for the sake of Christ and his church. And now Demas has turned back. He has abandoned Paul in his hour of need. Can you imagine the disappointment, the discouragement that the apostle might have felt because of this abandonment? The grief, frustration, even anger that might have bubbled to the surface feeling that Demas had betrayed him, had left him alone when he needed, desperately needed, the fellowship and the company of other believers. But here is the grace of God at work in the life of the Apostle Paul. In spite of what he must have been feeling in that moment, in spite of his own need for companionship and encouragement, as he sits in prison awaiting his own death, Demas has left him. And yet he still sent 
some of his most trusted companions away from him for the good of the churches. He says in verse 10, Demas has forsaken me, having loved this present world, and has departed for Thessalonica, Crescens for Galatia, Titus for Dalmatia. Now, there is no indication in the text of Scripture anywhere or in church history or tradition that Crescens or Titus had abandoned Paul at this time. Quite the contrary. They were sent by Paul to tend to the churches and the needs of those churches. Church tradition holds that Crescens not only went to Galatia, but may have continued on from there as far as modern-day France, preaching the gospel, establishing churches, and died and buried in France far from his own home. Titus, of course, was a trusted assistant to the Apostle Paul. He had previously been sent to Crete, and here he is sent to Dalmatia, working to train and appoint elders to see to the growth of the young churches in that region. By the grace of God, Paul put the good of others, the good of the churches and their needs, above his own desires and needs in this moment. He doesn't indulge his disappointment or his discouragement. He continues to think of Christ and the church, to think of others above his own comfort, even here at the end of his life. Only the grace of God can enable a sinful human being to act in such a selfless way. We've all been called to do the same, to put others before ourselves and our own desires, to die to ourselves for the cause of Christ in the world. And it is the grace of the Lord Jesus Christ that enables us to act in that way. As we continue reading, we see two more names in verse 11. He says, only Luke is with me. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for ministry. Now, Luke, we know as the beloved physician who accompanied Paul on many of his journeys and probably was tending to his physical needs. I imagine the apostle having suffered various afflictions, whipping, stoning, scourging, shipwrecks, probably had many pains physically. So Paul, the beloved, or Luke, the beloved physician, is there with the apostle Paul, tending to him physically. At the time of the writing of this letter, only Luke remains with him from all of those who had been his constant companions throughout his missionary journeys. He's left with just his physician. Now, there are obviously some local Christians in Rome uh, who have maintained fellowship with the apostle. We'll get to them in a few minutes. But even when he says only Luke is with him, I think that he means that those who were his trusted companions, those who were the closest co-laborers with him, are all off somewhere else. Demas has abandoned him. The others are off doing ministry work elsewhere. Only Luke is there at the time. And then he says something very interesting. Get Mark and bring him with you, for he is useful to me for ministry. Now Mark, we understand to be a reference to John Mark, who accompanied Paul and Barnabas on their first missionary journey. But he was not a faithful companion at the time. In Acts 13, 13, we read, Now when Paul and his party set sail from Paphos, they came to Persia 
and Pamphylia, and John, departing from them, returned to Jerusalem. That is John Mark. And then in chapter 15 of the book of Acts, after the Jerusalem council, they determined to undertake a second missionary journey to go visit the churches and to strengthen them. It says, then after some day, Paul said to Barnabas, let us now go back and visit our brethren in every city where we have preached the word of the Lord and see how they are doing. Now Barnabas was determined to take with them John called Mark, but Paul insisted that they should not take with them one who had not gone with them to the work, but had departed from them. Then the contention became so sharp that they parted from one another. So Barnabas took Mark and sailed to Cyprus, but Paul chose Silas and departed, being commended by the brethren to the grace of God. So in the past, Mark had abandoned them in the middle of a missionary journey, in the middle of the work, not unlike how Demas has now abandoned the Apostle Paul. And while Barnabas was later willing to give this young man another chance, probably because he was his cousin, as we read elsewhere in Scripture. Paul was not willing to do so at the time. And it became such a point of contention that Paul and Barnabas parted ways. They went different directions. But something appears to have changed at some point in the life of Mark. At some point, he appears to have grown, matured in the faith strengthened his resolve to the missionary task and the suffering that it entailed. And he proved to be an able companion, not only for Barnabas, but later for the Apostle Paul as well. He's mentioned at the end of Colossians, again, as as one who may visit the church there in Colossae and whom they were to welcome if he did. He's mentioned along with two others there in Colossians who are said, all of them, to be not only fellow workers for the kingdom of God, but also, Paul says, they have proved to be a comfort to me. And here in 2 Timothy, Paul says that Mark is useful to me for ministry. So that's quite a turnaround from one who abandoned them in the middle of the work to return to the comfort of home to now be a comfort and useful for ministry. I think we can see from this the grace of God at work in the life of Mark to mature and strengthen him for his calling, but also the grace of God at work in Paul to forgive Mark his earlier failure, to learn to trust the grace of God in him as a fellow worker for the kingdom, to be comforted by him as a brother in the Lord. What a blessing that the grace of God in Paul to grant comfort to him by this man, Mark, who had previously abandoned them and now has become so useful. What a blessing, the grace of God in our own lives to forgive each other after our failures, to strengthen and mature us in the faith that we might become useful to one another and comforting to one another as brothers and sisters in the Lord. I find this brief comment about Mark to be one of the most encouraging things about this letter. What a beautiful testimony to the grace of God. Then we see in verse 12 
a changing of the guard at Ephesus. Paul writes to Timothy and says, And Tychicus I have sent to Ephesus. Now, Tychicus had first joined Paul in Acts chapter 20 on his way to Jerusalem. If you'll remember, Paul had uh, gathered a gift from various churches to take back to Judea to the Christians that were suffering and impoverished there. And Tychicus may have been one of the representatives of those churches from Asia Minor who sent along with that gift to, to go to Jerusalem with Paul. But he seems to have become a trusted companion to the apostle, for he's mentioned several times in Paul's letters. Most of the time, he's the one carrying the letter. Now think about that. Paul knew he was writing scripture. This is clear from the writings of Paul and Peter both that they knew what they were writing was being inspired by the Holy Spirit for the good of the churches. These were important letters. You didn't trust them to just anyone. But this man, Tychicus, had become so trusted by the Apostle Paul that he ends up carrying the letter to Colossae, to Ephesus, and again here in 2 Timothy. It's likely that Paul sent this letter to Timothy in Tychicus' hands so that he could then fill in in Ephesus while Timothy traveled to Rome to be with Paul. Paul didn't expect Timothy to leave immediately upon receiving the letter, though he does encourage him to leave before winter. But it seems he expects Timothy to stay for some time to help Tychicus get settled in, to deal with some of the false teachers and other situations that have been troubling the church there as he's been instructed to in the letter. But what a blessing that Timothy can do so, that he can leave the church and go to Rome to be with Paul in his imprisonment, knowing that a trustworthy brother is there to care for the flock, to continue the training of the elders in the church. This is the grace of God at work in the church, that he has provided a plurality of leaders so that his people are not dependent upon one man only to teach them and lead them in each church. Instead, in his infinite wisdom and grace, God has given to the church multiple pastors and teachers that it might be the word of God itself that not the personality of the man that sustains the saints spiritually. And again, this is a grace from God, undeserved, unmerited favor that we receive from the Lord that he should provide and care for his people this generously. Next, in verse 13, we see what appears to be a a personal triviality from Paul to Timothy. He says, bring the cloak that I left at Carpus, with Carpus at Troas when you come, and the books, especially the parchments. This doesn't look like much at first glance, but it's inspired scripture, and I believe that it teaches us something of the grace of God. Theologians are divided over the meaning of the word that is translated here as cloak. Some see it as a reference to some sort of outer garment, what we might call a winter coat. Winter is approaching. Paul is in prison, which might have been cold and damp, and he wants his coat so that he might stay warm. Others, including John Calvin, see this word as a reference to some sort of chest or traveling case for transporting books and parchments. If it's a coat of some sort, 
I think that little detail helps to sort of humanize the Apostle Paul, who's often seen as some sort of Christian superhero. He gets cold. He wants his coat. To me, that's kind of encouraging to know that Paul was fully human. That would be a grace from God to let us see this very human detail about the great apostle. Or it may be that it is a carrying case for the books which he wishes to have. And again, this desire of his shows the work of grace in his life as a believer. Paul is facing death. He believes that it's near. And what does he want? He wants his books. He wants to keep studying, to keep learning. As John Gill points out, the apostle was a great reader of books of various sorts, both Gentile and Jewish, as is apparent by his citations out of the the heathen poets and his acquaintance with Jewish records. And then Gill lists a number of references where Paul is quoting from Stoic philosophers, from heathen poets, from Jewish histories. So the apostle loves to read and to learn. But more than that, as Calvin points out, it is evident from this that the apostle had not given up his reading, though he was already preparing for death. Where are those who think that they have made so great a progress that they do not need any more exercise? Which of them will dare to compare himself with Paul? Still more does the expression refute the madness of those men who, despising books and condemning all reading, boast of nothing but their own divine inspirations. Let us know that this passage gives to all believers a recommendation of constant reading that they may profit by it. I see this as an indication of the grace of God in the apostle's heart that even while he knew his own death was near, he still longed to study, to continue to learn that he might know his God even better. I see this as an indication that he is loving the Lord with all of his mind right up to the end of his life. With his impending doom upon him, Paul doesn't dwell on his anxieties, but by the grace of God, he directs his thoughts to study for the love of God and the good of the churches. Makes me think of my own grandmother. I hope I can say this without tearing up. But even when she was in her 90s, If you stopped by to visit her, there was always an open Bible, a notebook, and a pen on the kitchen table. Right up until the day she died, she was studying the scriptures to learn more of her God. Don't let your love for God grow cold. Continue to increase in the knowledge of God to your dying day. By the grace of God, who has revealed himself to us in the scriptures. This is our everlasting employment in eternity to continue to learn more and more of Christ and his glory. Why would we stop that now? Oh, the depth of the riches, both of the wisdom and knowledge of God. How unsearchable are his judgments and his ways past finding out. Paul wrote that in his letter to the Roman church. But here he is in Rome, in prison, awaiting his death, and he continues to search out and to increase in his knowledge of God.
Then in verses 14 and 15, Paul seems to return to some instruction to Timothy. He says, Alexander the coppersmith did me much harm. May the Lord repay him according to his works. You also must beware of him, for he has greatly resisted our words. But even here, we we see the grace of God at work in Paul. First, note that he says Alexander did him much harm. And at least a part of that harm was with his words. He opposed, he resisted the message of the gospel that Paul preached. So keep in mind that harm or evil can be done without the use of physical force. Persecution can take the form of speech, of verbal hostility to the gospel message. But here's the grace in this. Notice Paul's response. May the Lord repay him according to his works. He doesn't tell Timothy or Tychicus to work towards getting Alexander in trouble with the authorities. He simply references Psalm 22, verse 12. Or, I'm sorry, Psalm 62, verse 12. Also to you, O Lord, belongs mercy, for you render to each one according to his work. Paul leaves it to God to deal with this opponent to the faith. He doesn't seek personal revenge or even vindication in the eyes of the world. He leaves it to the Lord. And this goes against our sinful nature that wants to inflict harm back on those who have hurt us. But by the grace of God, Paul is able to set aside any personal grudge and leave it to the Lord to repay. And we're called to the same. In fact, Paul writes to the church in Rome, in Romans chapter 12, verse 19, Beloved, do not avenge yourselves, but rather give place to wrath, for it is written, Vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. Only the grace of God in Christ Jesus can enable us to set aside our personal wrath and desire for vengeance and leave it in the Lord's hands. Now that doesn't mean that we don't exercise wisdom and discernment, and caution around those who might mean us harm, even if that harm is only verbal in nature. He does tell Timothy, you also must beware of him, for he has greatly resisted our words. So Paul cautions Timothy to to beware of this man, Alexander. He may continue to oppose the work of the gospel there in Ephesus. But then notice that he continues this theme of not seeking to retaliate against people. Beware of Alexander, but leave it in the Lord's hands. And then in verse 16, he says, At my first defense, no one stood with me, but all forsook me. May it not be charged against them. He doesn't hold a personal grudge against those who abandoned him. He actually prays that God might forgive them for whatever sin and fault they have in the matter. And yet Paul is left in his first defense in the Roman legal system to speak for himself with no witnesses to speak on his behalf. The grace to forgive others is a direct result of experiencing the grace of forgiveness in our own lives and being thankful for it.
So this is one more instance of the grace of God at work in Paul's closing comments. Next, note that throughout the letter, Paul has exhorted Timothy over and over again to endure hardship, endure suffering, persevere through trials and persecution. And now he demonstrates for us how that is done in verse 17. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that the message might be preached fully through me and that all the Gentiles might hear. When no one else stood by him, Paul knows, he is confident that the Lord did and that it was the Lord who strengthened him to endure through the trial, through the loneliness, through the abandonment, through his disappointment, through his discouragement, through it all, the Lord ministered grace to him that he might endure and delivered him, he says, I also I was delivered out of the mouth of the lion. Now, I don't think that he means that literally uh, that, that he was thrown to the lions. There's no indication that Paul was ever thrown into the Colosseum to be devoured by lions and God miraculously stopped their mouths. Some commentators think that this is a reference to Nero under the metaphor of a lion. Uh, but Paul is eventually put to death by Nero. I think he simply means this is a reference to Psalm chapter 22. But you, O Lord, do not be far from me. O my strength, hasten to help me. Deliver me from the sword, my precious life, from the power of the dog. Save me from the lion's mouth and from the horns of the wild oxen. I think Paul simply means that the Lord had been his strength. When he stood alone to testify with no other witnesses, that the Lord strengthened him through that trial, spared him not only death, but spared him from apostasy. Imagine the immense pressure that Paul is under to keep the faith without wavering in that moment. But he had not given in to fear, not for his own earthly life and well-being, but he had boldly proclaimed the good news of Jesus in that moment when he was supposed to be defending himself against a criminal charge. And it was the grace of God that had strengthened him to endure through many hardships of spirit, mind, and body. And we can have assurance of that same grace in our own lives. John chapter 10, verse 27 through 29, Jesus speaking says, My sheep hear my voice, and I know them, and they follow me, and I give them eternal life. And they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my Father's hand. What wonderful assurance we have from Christ himself that we are safe in his hands. He will not let us fall away permanently. But by his grace we will persevere. The grace to endure trials isn't only about being cast in prison on a foreign mission field somewhere. It can be about enduring when others do us harm with their words. As Alexander had done there in Ephesus, as Matthew, as John, sorry, as Matthew writes, 
Christ's words in the Sermon on the Mount, blessed are you when they revile you and persecute you and say all manner of evil against you falsely for my sake. Rejoice and be exceeding glad, for great is your reward in heaven. For so they persecuted the prophets who were before you. They persecuted the prophets by reviling and speaking evil against them. Persecution can be people speaking against you falsely for Christ's sake and enduring that sort of persecution, that evil speech, that reviling, enduring it so that you do not give in to fear, peer pressure, you don't fall away, but you keep the faith. That is a work of grace in our lives. Another testimony to grace is that in the midst of enduring that sort of persecution, not only was Paul strengthened to endure and to keep the faith, but he takes joy in that moment in the progress of the gospel. But the Lord stood with me and strengthened me so that the message might be preached fully through me and that all the Gentiles might hear. By the grace of God, Paul, alone and unattended by his friends, was able to boldly proclaim the gospel message so that all the Gentiles might hear. Even those of Caesar's household, he tells us in Philippians. And so Paul rejoices in his affliction because it means gospel opportunities. This is a work of grace in our hearts to allow us to rejoice in that way, not for affliction's sake, but that our affliction might mean someone else hears the gospel who wouldn't have otherwise. It might mean that a doctor or a nurse who hears the gospel because you are suffering some physical affliction. I know that was the case in my dad's life. When he was at the end of his life, going to the doctor, he had brain tumors, inoperable. But that doctor heard the gospel. He received a copy of the scriptures. And he made a promise to a dying man that he would read the gospel of John. A year or two later, my brother ran into that doctor in the course of his work. That doctor and his wife are now Christians. What grace of God that he would use us in the salvation of others. It's amazing. Then in verse 18, we read of Paul's hope of glory. Not only is he delivered, but he says, the Lord will deliver me from every evil work And preserve me for his heavenly kingdom. To him be glory forever and ever. Amen. Paul was expecting the end of his life. He was not expecting. He wasn't expecting that God would deliver him from physical harm in this moment. He expected to die. He knew the end was near. But he is confident that God will deliver him spiritually, that God would preserve him for the heavenly kingdom. John Calvin comments, saying that Paul declares that he hopes the same for the future, not that he will escape death, 
but that he will not be vanquished by Satan or turned aside from the right course. This is what we ought chiefly to desire, not that the interests of the body may be promoted, but that we may rise superior to every temptation and may be ready to suffer a hundred deaths rather than that it should come into our mind to pollute ourselves by any evil work. Paul was confident here at the end that no matter what trial or persecution came his way, God would preserve him so that he might finish his race well. He says that God would preserve him for the heavenly kingdom, not for an earthly one. This is a testimony to what Calvin later calls the uninterrupted communication of the grace of God. It is uninterrupted because having begun the Christian life by grace, the grace of God that enables us to trust in Christ for our salvation, we begin by grace, but then we continue uninterrupted over the course of our lives to be recipients of God's grace so that we are preserved for his heavenly kingdom. Perseverance is not a work of the will of man, but of the grace of God. And finally, I think that we see the grace of God at work in the closing of this letter, in the fellowship of the saints. Paul obviously values this very much. In the last few verses here, he offers greetings. Greet Prisca and Aquila and the household of Onesiphorus. Erastus stayed in Corinth, but Trophimus I have left in Miletus sick. Do your utmost to come before winter. Eubulus greets you as well as Pudens, Linus, Claudia, and all the brethren. Verse 20 is a testimony, I think, against the health and prosperity gospel. The apostle Paul had to leave a fellow worker of the gospel behind because he was sick. No miraculous healing. No sense of God wants you to be healthy, wealthy, and happy. No, in the course of his imprisonment and his transportation to Rome, one of his associates had been left behind because he was too sick to continue the journey. But that's really beside the point. That's, that's a freebie, as Brian would say. The point is, look at the names of these people that Paul obviously loves, whose fellowship he enjoys Prisca or Priscilla and Aquila are mentioned five other times in the New Testament. They were obviously close associates and friends of the apostle, friends that he obviously treasured. Onesiphorus was praised in chapter 1 as being a blessing to Paul. Chapter 1 of the letter, beginning in verse 16, The Lord grant mercy to the household of Onesiphorus, for he often refreshed me and was not ashamed of my chain. But when he arrived in Rome, he sought me out very zealously and found me. The Lord grant to him that he may find mercy from the Lord in that day. And you know very well how many ways he ministered to me at Ephesus. Paul obviously treasured this man and his fellowship as a brother in Christ. And there are fellow believers here in, in Rome who send greeting to Timothy and to the church in Ephesus we see this in verse 21. Paul enjoyed the fellowship of other believers with great joy. What a gift of grace it is that we don't have to live the Christian life alone. 
God has given us each other to be an everlasting family that we might enjoy fellowship with others who also love Christ and hope for his appearing. It was quite obviously a great encouragement to the Apostle Paul, and it should be to us as well. That's why things like our monthly fellowship meal, even work days around the church, all these various activities that we engage in are so important. These things build fellowship. They're good for our souls. Solomon wrote in Ecclesiastes, two are better than one because they have a good reward for their labor. For if they fall, one will lift up his companion. But woe to him who is alone when he falls, for he has no one to help him up. Again, if two lie down together, they will keep warm. But how can one be warm alone? Though one may be overpowered by another, two can withstand him, and a threefold cord is not quickly broken. The fellowship of the saints is more important than we may realize. In the book of Acts, we're told of the early church that they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine and fellowship, in the breaking of bread and in prayers. Continued steadfastly not only in the teaching of the apostles and their doctrine, holding fast that pattern of sound words, but also in the fellowship of the church, in the ordinances and in prayer. Fellowship's right there with doctrine, prayer, and the Lord's Supper. Part of that fellowship is obviously gathering on the Lord's Day to worship together, but that can't be all that is meant because four verses later, Luke records that they were in each other's homes on a daily basis, eating together with gladness, enjoying fellowship with other believers. John wrote in his first letter saying that if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. He puts fellowship with one another and being cleansed from our sins by the sacrificial blood of Christ in the same sentence. That's how important fellowship is. It's important enough in the mind of God that he inspired two apostles to group it together with the forgiveness of sins, sound doctrine, prayer, and the ordinances of the church. And I think... We have to acknowledge that any blessing of fellowship that we enjoy with one another is a direct gift of God's grace to us. And so Paul closes his letter with this. The Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit. Grace be with you. Amen. May we know the grace of Christ in our lives, in our ministry, in our suffering, and in our fellowship as a church. Let's pray.